Please take a seat. And uh, please turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 5, which was page 1228 of the Church Bibles. 1 John chapter 5, uh, page 1228. And as you're finding that, let me start by telling you about Natalia Demuruk. I'm not sure that's how you say her name, but that's how I'm going to say it. Uh, She's the hero of the Orange Revolution. Uh, In Ukraine in 2005, uh, there was a presidential election with two main candidates, uh, the the sitting president and then uh, the the highly popular opposition leader. But it became obvious uh, over time that the election result was massively rigged in the favour of the incumbent president. Uh, This was uh, uh, despite a huge turnout for the election, uh, he won again. And despite unease uh, growing uh, in, the, in the nation as the result uh, occurred, it seemed that business as usual would go on. That was until Natalia uh, stepped on the scene. She had a simple job. Uh, she'd been assigned uh, that night uh, to translate the news uh, on, the, uh, on the television, the state-run media television station, to deaf viewers. And so as the news of yet another glorious victory for the sitting president was being broadcast, Natalia began her translation, which went something like this. It's all a lie. Don't believe them. We must protest. She continued this for some nights until slowly her quiet resistance in the face of huge odds sparked what was known as the Orange Revolution, which saw a complete change of rule, all begun with one voice speaking out against the decision. Now tonight, as we look at 1 John together for one final time, as we get to 1 John 5, we are going to see news of a revolution that is far more spectacular than even that. It's the revolution that occurs in a person's life when God speaks to them. And if you look at 1 John 5, you'll see that really the aim of our sermon tonight is to see just how powerful a force the Word of God is in our lives that God's word really has the power to bring revolutionary change about, total change. If you look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, you'll see just in these two verses, three times John will say this. He will tell us the effect that this word can have on us. God speaks, do you see it there? That you may overcome the world. God speaks that you may overcome the world. That's what we're going to see tonight. Here in the last verses of this letter, the dominant theme is of a great battle. It's like a scene from one of those great war movies, like something out of Lord of the Rings. I was watching Lord of the Rings last night. I think it was the number two one which was on. And this is, if you like, the Christian's Helm's Deep battle. This is the great battle. And just as this letter is coming to an end, we have this battle unveiled for us. It's the battle that every Christian faces. And John in these verses draws the lines of this battle very starkly. As he describes the battlefield to us, this is what he describes. On one side is you, just you. And on the other side is the world. Now that's a pretty serious fight, isn't it? And one that, uh, as I looked at it this week, raises some serious questions. Firstly, what is wrong with my world that it would be opposed to me and I? What is wrong with the world that it would be my enemy that I would be in this battle? And secondly, how in the world is this a fair fight, me versus the world? Well, let's think about those questions 
for a moment together. Firstly, what is wrong with our world? That it would be my enemy. In one sense, nothing much. There's lots to love about our world, isn't there? Lots to love. Human creativity, for instance. I was at uh, this summer at a U2 concert, the height of human creativity as far as I'm concerned. And there I am at that moment, you think there is lots to love about our world. Food. Uh, This week I've been given uh, uh, three packets of uh, Tim Tams, they're called. Uh, If you've never experienced Tim Tams, uh, you're not going to experience mine. (laughs) They're an Australian uh, chocolate biscuit. The closest you've got is the pale imitation known as penguins, I think. Uh, They are brilliant. And I'm sharing that with you, as I said, not because I intend to share them with you, just to share it. Food is good. There is lots to love about our world. Humour is good. The British are, are way better at it than Australians. We're too blunt, too angular for humour. There's much to love about our world. Learning. There's many students here tonight who are about to start the world of learning. The, the world is about to massively open up for you. The world of science or medicine or philosophy or architecture or for the blessed few, the happy few, economics. There's much to love and the Bible would agree. Our world is a place of blessing and provision and purpose everywhere you turn. But our world is not just U2 concerts and Tim Tams and economics, is it? Our world, although spectacularly beautiful, is also broken. Live a day in a world like this and you know things are pretty far from okay. Uh, To quote a great movie from the early 90s, Grand Canyon says this, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Everything's supposed to be different than it is. And the Bible makes clear for us why. And it's not an answer we want to hear. You see, most times when we read these verses in 1 John 5 and we hear about the world being in opposition to us, all the things that are wrong about the world are all out there. It's the world out there, far distant from me. But to quote the late, great Michael Jackson, we are the world. And here's what's wrong with the world. You are. I am. From the very first man right through to this man here and every woman as well, our brokenness stems from our common fault, our sin, as the Bible calls it. From the basement of time as our God has spoken to us, as he speaks to create life, as he speaks towards our good, Our response has always been the same from the first man, Adam, all the way through to me and you. When he speaks, I don't believe him. I don't believe he has my good in mind. I don't trust that he loves me ultimately. Or if I did, I'd listen. I'd listen to what he said. And the result of my disbelief is not insignificant and not good. You see, if God can't be trusted, then neither can you. And so I'm left with one clear resolve. The only person I can trust loves me. The only person I'm absolutely sure is committed to my good is me. And so we live in a world where we are in pursuit of our own good. I pursue it ever fearful that I won't get it or not fully or I won't be able to hang on to it. And so we grow insecure about our level of happiness or success or how loved we are. And so I search for things that I think will do me good or calm these fears or satisfy me. Satisfy what I think is lacking. 
And if you flick back in 1 John to chapter 2, verse 16, you'll see this made very clear for us, what our world is like when it fails to believe God. It shows us what this pursuit looks like, my search for my own good. It expresses itself in two clear ways. Firstly, I desire what I don't have or do. That's what's going to give me this good that I'm after, what I don't have or what I don't do. And then the things that I do have or, or do do, I take pride in them. And so when, Paul is, uh, when John is describing this battle that we're in, us versus the world, these are the forces that are against us. My desire for what I don't have and my pride in what I do have. And they feed off each other, don't they? I desire more and then I get it and I take pride in it. But even that doesn't satisfy me, so I desire more. And this vicious cycle doesn't lead to joy or freedom, it's just exhausting. And so in this battle, me versus the world, I am massively outnumbered. I'm surrounded by my own pursuit of my own good, my desire for what I want and my pride in what I already have and ultimately by my disbelief in my God's goodness. How in the world is that a fair fight? Well, it's not. And it's not a fight we can win. And my heart is to blame. I'm with the enemy. I'm with the world. It's like the atrocious uh, musician Frank Zappa. He, said, he once said this. He said, in the fight between you and the world, back the world. It's not surprising when you find that you're your own worst enemy. And so what's 1 John 5 got to say to us in response to this? What does God say in response to a world like this? Well, how does God respond to what looks like a hopeless situation, massively outnumbered? How does he respond? Well, he responds like the mighty men of David. Did you hear that reading in 2 Samuel 23? There's not much purpose to it, to be honest, tonight. I just love hearing it read especially when I don't have to say the names out loud. But you have these amazing uh, scenes of these one man standing in a field against a huge army with a huge grin on his face as he, as he takes them on one by one. Well, here's what God does in the battle between you and the world. He walks onto the battlefield and he speaks. He speaks and the effect is incredible, leaving the deeds of David's mighty men far behind. You see, when God speaks, his word brings victory. I overcome the world. You see, that's what this series uh, all through September has been about. It's been about this victory that's finally unveiled to us in 1 John 5. What we've been doing is calling on one another not to underestimate what God achieves when he speaks to us and when we listen and when we believe him. To see how great a victory comes from that. And so for the rest of tonight, what I want to show you in 1 John 5 is the spoils of victory that come from God speaking and you believing him. Revolutions really, three revolutions that God brings about by simply speaking to you. The first one of this is this, and it doesn't get much bigger than this. Have a look at 1 John 5 verse 1. When God speaks and you believe, you are born again. You start again. That's what he says in verse 1. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone who believes, everyone who has faith. You see, faith in Jesus Christ is the most revolutionary force this world has ever known. 
This is the victory, as verse 4 says, that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, in one sense, uh, many people in our world would not dispute how powerful faith is. We love the idea of faith. Uh, We're a world filled with faith communities. We're a world filled with men of faith. You often hear the phrase, I wish I had your faith. We love the idea of faith. Yes, I have a faith of sorts. I, I have a faith by which I mean I enjoy the experience of believing. The content of that belief is almost irrelevant. It is, as Robert Louis Stevenson once said, to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. Our faith journey is what, the, what matters, not where the road is heading. You see, faith for our world gives us meaning, gets some sort of depth to life, even if all that's in that depth is smoke and shadows, nothing to hold on to. It's the idea of faith we like. That's not what John is talking about here, is it? When he declares faith overcomes the world, he's talking about something far more solid. You see, faith in Jesus is the exact opposite of smoke and shadows. It's made of real stuff. Do you see it there in verses 6 to 11? It's made of blood and water. It's the exact opposite of the journey rather than the destination. It is about one place, one hill, one tree, one man. It's a faith that doesn't come from some inner wistfulness or or my imaginings of something bigger than myself. It comes from one moment, the moment my God speaks to me in his word when he speaks by his spirit about the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And what he speaks to me is the truth, the truth about Jesus and it changes everything. Now remember what sort of world God speaks that truth into. It's a a world where every man from Adam up to this man and every woman as well responds to his word with disbelief. Failing to believe he's committed to my good. Well in the face of that unbelief, what does God do? He speaks his best word yet. His ultimate word. The word of his son. A word spoken to break through, to smash through my unbelief. If you look at verses 6 and 7, you'll see that word, the testimony God speaks. It's very real, it's very earthy, it's very bloody. Verse 6, this is, what, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. You see, the basis of my faith in Jesus Christ is not some inner conviction, but the water and blood he shed on that hill, nailed to that tree. God overcomes my unbelief in his goodness by speaking of the moment Jesus died for me. You see, what John's referring to here, he he makes even more explicit in his gospel. In chapter 9 of John's gospel, he says this, speaking of that moment. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may believe. God speaks to us not of vain hopes but of history, history written in blood, the blood of Jesus, of God's Son, 
of the God-man in my place. It's the Spirit of God who tells me that. It's the Spirit of God who, who breaks through my stubborn refusal to believe it and brings it home, shows me what this historical event really means, shows me how utterly committed to my good God really is, how much he loves me. What breaks through to my heart is this, God is for me. And that confidence is based on the Spirit who tells me the truth about Jesus, that God loves me. And when I accept that word, when I come to God and I say, I believe you, life actually begins again, is what John says here in verse 1. You are born of God, born again. That's the first revolutionary change that God's word causes in you. Jesus goes from meaning nothing to you to being the most valuable thing you have. You receive Jesus for all he is to you. He's your king, the son of God, whose father is now your father, who loves you, who is committed to your good. His water and blood tells you that. You can be sure. And when I'm born again like that, I am no longer ensnared by the power of the gods of this world, by my desire to have and do, by my pride in those things. I'm no longer compelled by that because I'm compelled by another testimony that tells me that one man died for all, that tells me that God is for me. There's the first revolution. The second one is this. When God speaks to you and you believe, you are given a new love. And here again you see the power of his word. You see, he doesn't just free me from my old love, me, expressed in this desire for more and pride in what I have, a love that's no love at all. He gives me a new love by placing his spirit in me. Do you see the love there in verses 1 and 2? Totally new. A love for God and his children. But what's remarkable for me about this uh, passage and about this chapter in 1 John is that we've seen this a couple of weeks ago that God puts his very spirit, the spirit which is love in us. But do you see how we express our love for God, this new love that we have, this love for one another? Have a look at verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, obeying his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Now these are remarkable words and so helpful for us. Do you see what it's saying? It says, how do you express your love for God's children? How do you express your love for those around you tonight? Answer, you love God. How do you love God? Answer, you obey his commands. You see, when the spirit breaks through to my heart with a testimony that gives me complete assurance that God is for me, then his commands look very different to me. And so John is quite clear. Loving God means loving and desiring his will to be done in my life. And why wouldn't I? He's for me. And so I will express my trust of him, my joy in his love for me and my love for him in this. I will listen and I will obey him. Now, I guess the obvious question for me as you see this, that if loving God is obeying his commands, you you want to know which commands. Give me a list. Which ones do I need to obey to show God that I love him? 
Well, in one sense, all scripture that we read is written to lead you to obedience. Whenever you hear God speak, he is always speaking with a view to changing you, speaking with a view to asking you to walk in his ways. And so your job, whenever you listen, is to obey. But at the heart of all God's commands is one thing. Let me read Romans 13:9, and you'll see what I mean. Paul says this in Romans 13, he says, The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. If you want to love your brother, obey God. If you want this church to be marked by love, and absolutely we want that, we need to first be marked by listening and obeying to, to God's voice. You can't divorce growing in love for God and others from listening to his word and obeying it. They are mutually dependent. That's what John is showing us here. That's why in our student work at Lighthouse, every time we meet, we open the scriptures together. It's why in our small groups, amongst all the other things that we will do when we gather in lounge rooms, we always open the word of God together because we want to love each other. That's why our youth work is founded upon opening the scriptures. That's how we learn to love each other. The Spirit has given us a new love, God and others, and I express it by obeying what God tells me to do. And as we do, this is what we're going to find. His commands are not burdensome. Did you hear that as it was being read out? God's commands are not burdensome. Do you believe that? I mean, really, do you believe that? Not a burden. Taking what John is saying, it's, I think it's actually very challenging for us. I think we Christians want to say, yes, yes, I affirm that, I agree. God's commands are not burdensome. But he's good, he loves me, he's wiser than me, he's my father. I know they're not a burden. I mean, I might grumble from time to time, but deep down inside I know he's got my good in mind. But the danger is this. We know they're good for us like we know vegetables are good for us. Or the flu vaccine. I know it's good for me like I know that putting out the bin tonight is a good idea, but when I remember it just after I've got into bed, my heart will sink as I think about the process of actually doing it. You ever felt that way when God's spoken to you? You know he's calling you to change, but what he's asking of you makes your heart sink. But the thought of actually changing. His commands are not burdensome. Do you believe that? If he calls you not to pursue a relationship that you're flirting with, if he calls you to forgive and you're content just being civil, if he calls you to abandon a cherished sin and not just to absolve yourself by feeling guilty about it, but actually stopping. If he calls you to stop fearing being generous with your money. If he calls you not to get drunk this week and you know that's going to be hard. If he calls you to get a hold of your anger at home. If he calls you to quit obsessing about the house. He's been saying that to me this week. You know he's good and he speaks for your good but your heart sinks at the thought of actually moving from hearing him say that to actually 
following through. Whenever we feel like this, and we will, we need to realise what's happening. Rather than our heart being fixed on this testimony the Spirit tells us, the testimony that God is for us, that Jesus' blood and water tells us, my heart is again being wooed once more by this world, by the desires of this world, whether they be good or not, whether they be material or relational or physical or whatever. When God calls us to obey him, when it comes to the things of the world and our heart sinks, it's because I don't believe his word about this particular area. I don't believe he knows what's for my good here. There's only one way to battle that feeling. Listen again to his testimony about Jesus, about his love, about how utterly committed to your good he really is. Fill your heart with that testimony such that Jesus becomes to you more precious and more worthy than anything you would want to cling to. Such that when he calls you to let go, you will because you trust him. Because you know he loves you. What John is telling us here is if we trust him, over time we will overcome the world. Our love for the world and its desires will fade and our love for him and his desires will grow. What faith does ultimately for us is this. It shows me just how magnificent Jesus really is, how glorious his love is for me, how wonderful his grace. Faith opens my eyes to all he is for me, such that his commands are no more of a burden to me than wings are for a bird. He speaks that I may obey, that I might live. Let me give you one final revolution just briefly. You see it there in verse 13 of our passage. When God speaks and you believe him, you are given a new hope. I think John's done something wonderful for us in this passage, unveiling this fight that we're all in. He's shown us how strong our opponent really is in this letter, but he's also shown us something even stronger. The power of God's word spoken into this world. The word about Jesus, a word that brings new birth, new love and now new hope. That's the power of the gospel. To not only free you from your sin, but to free you from the consequences of it, death. God walks onto the battlefield and by his word, the sword of his spirit, as Ephesians calls it, he slays sin and death before you. John ain't kidding when he says you overcome the world. Your faith sees you overcome even death. 1 John 5.13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There is coming a day when the hope that we have as Christians will be realised. The day you will stand before your God and see all he has for you because of his grace. The day you will see him face to face. Do you think much about that day? You're not going to trust his word if you don't. It's the day all fear, all grief, all hurt, all darkness, all shame, all regret will pass away along with this world and you'll see writ large before you the full extent of God's goodness for you, his love for you. 
God speaks this word to you to fill your heart with that hope. A hope that we enjoy now through this new birth and new love, a hope that is yet to come with him in heaven. Perhaps the most famous uh, football chant that I've come across uh, since moving to the UK is this one, you're only singing when you're winning. Uh, I've not had the joy of uh, singing it at a football ground, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. You're only singing when you're winning. Let me ask you, Christian, are you singing? You should be. God's word received by faith gives you a victory that is unparalleled and unimaginably good. Are you singing? Are you living like someone who has overcome the world? We've seen what that will look like in these four weeks. We've seen he who has this hope will purify themselves. They will fight sin. We've seen he who has the hope we have will love without fear of the cost. And last week we saw he who has this hope listens to the truth about Jesus. Well, tonight he who has his hope sings like they're winning. John says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even your faith. Let me pray for us. Father God, we do thank you for your complete goodness towards us. We thank you that you leave us in no doubt of that, showing us the the blood of your Son. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to love you by obeying what you speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.